There's this irony that when we work amongst the poor, we kind of think the goal is to make them like us, but we're not doing that great. That's Brian Fickert, co-author of the book called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. This is an incredible book that really challenged me, and I hope it challenges you too, not just with how to help others that are in need, but why we as Americans may not have all the answers ourselves. So Brian, let's just dig right into this. First off, why did you decide to write this book? I think two things. The first inspiration is this. About about 10 years ago, I was privileged to co-author a book called When Helping Hurts. And uh, the Lord used that book in ways that I, we never could have dreamed or imagined. We're so thankful for that. But uh, what happened is so many people came up to us with very specific questions. You know, they were working with a particular people group in uh, this country in Africa, and they had very particular questions about what to do in that situation. And, and we realized that uh, we couldn't possibly come up with the entire laundry list of all the answers to every question out there. And that what people were lacking was a bit of a framework and they needed more of a story. What is the overall goal and how does God typically go about achieving his work in the world? And they needed to know that story to kind of live into that story with great freedom and joy and and without a sense of um, there's this formula I've got to follow. If I don't just get it right, it's all going to go south. Uh, the reality of it is there's a lot of mystery in God's kingdom. There's a lot of mystery in God's story. So we want to give people wisdom, just the overall sense of what is the story we're called to live into, and then the freedom for them to live into that story and to make mistakes on their own in whatever setting they were in. So that was the first motivation. The second motivation was this. Uh, a, a, a lot's gone wrong in America. Uh, uh, when you actually look at the data, uh, there is... Uh, increased anxiety, there's increased depression, uh, our families are falling apart, our communities are falling apart, the political process is, is in gridlock. There, there's a sense in which we've lost a deep sense of what the goal is, of how to achieve that goal. There's a sense in which we don't know the story. The story that we've defaulted to is the story of the American dream, but that story isn't working very well. And so we realized that there's this irony that when we work amongst the poor, we kind of think the goal is to make them like us, but we're not doing that great. And so we've got to pause. We've got to step back and ask, what is God's our overarching goal for all of humanity? How does he typically go about achieving that goal? And how does that frame our work amongst the poor and indeed our individual lives? And I mean, you kind of touched on that right there, but right at the very beginning of the book, you talk about the paradox of unhappy growth. And I just think that is such a powerful thought, it, it, again, as Americans, that we think sometimes we have all the answers. But why why is it that we, you know, maybe we're, uh, I always think it's interesting. I see the stats that somebody in poverty here in America has a, a 32-inch flat screen HDTV. <laughs> you know, that, that's yep, poverty exactly. in America. But, but exactly. so why are we still unhappy? That's a great question. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I had a, a leader from Uganda with me once uh, driving uh, down the highway here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I live. And I pointed uh, to a housing project and I said, that's where low-income people live in my city. And they looked at it. This was a major leader. And he said, could I please move in there? That's a better house than I have. And, and, and yet in many ways, 
the poor in Uganda are in some ways better off than the people that we consider to be poor in America. And so poverty isn't fundamentally about stuff. It's, it's not fundamentally about do I have more stuff or do I have less stuff? There's a different way of understanding human flourishing than simply an indicator of our wealth. And the scripture suggests that, that, that human flourishing has to do with relationship, with enjoying a relational God, with, with living as relational people. And the Bible teaches there's four key relationships with God, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation, with our work and our carefree environment. And it's when we experience these relationships the way that God intended, that we experience the good life, that we experience human flourishing. And so it's about community. It's about friendship. It's about um, walking with one another across time. It, it's not really about more stuff. And, and, and the problem with American civilization right now is we're set up our institutions, our stories, our practices are set up to live into a different uh, story of change, a different understanding of what the goal is, of how the goal is achieved. And so the, the basic default of American civilization is actually not set up for human flourishing. I thought this was kind of interesting, too. Kind of in the beginning, you're talking about how do human beings and cultures change. And uh, I, wrote, I underlined a lot under talking about we become what we worship. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's great. You know, poverty alleviation is fundamentally about change. It's about helping low-income individuals or communities move from their current situation into a better situation. And so poverty alleviation is about change. And that raises the question, how do human beings change? And the Bible suggests uh, that human beings are transformed into the image of whatever God we're worshiping. That now, when we say worship here, we don't mean, uh, you know, who do we bow down to or sing a song to on Sunday morning. Worship has more to do with um, what's the greatest pull on our lives. What is that thing that we're oriented around? What is that thing that drives us? That that there's the magnet uh, that that shapes what we think and what we love and what we do. Uh, 24-7. And, and that thing that we're oriented around, that thing that we're worshiping in that full sense, is the thing that we become like. We take on the qualities and characteristics of that thing that we're worshiping. And, and so um, uh, when we work with low-income people, we work in, in low-income communities, we've got to ask the question, uh, what is this individual, what is this community worshiping? What is the pull on their lives? And then how can we uh, uh, work amongst them in a way that they are drawn into worship of the one true God and, 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 and all of whom he is. And the same is true in our individual lives. And when our listeners get out of bed uh, uh, in the morning, uh, when the alarm clock goes off, uh, there's a pull. There's a magnet that is pulling our listeners in a certain direction. And that magnet, whatever that is, is what is the direction in which our listeners are becoming. And the same is true for me. When I get out of bed in the morning, I've got to ask, what is driving me? What is the pull in my life? Because I'm becoming like that thing. And unless that thing is the, is the triune God, we're going to always be square pegs and round holes because we are wired to be in his image. And if we're being transformed in the image of a different God, our personhoods cry out. They scream out and they say, I'm not made for this. I'm made for something else. And, and so my understanding of, of the huge increase in mental illness in America, the huge breakdown in physical uh, and mental uh, health, has to do with this idea that we're being transformed into the image of the wrong God and our personages are screaming out and saying, I'm not made for this. I'm made for something else. And I think it's interesting you talk about uh, a term I've never really heard before, evangelical Gnosticism. 
<laughs> and 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 it's it's a pretty deep dive. And I, I was reading it, and it was a little hard for me to 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 wrap my mind around. I, I underlined a whole lot, but I feel like maybe hearing it from the source, you might be able to explain it a little bit better. Oh, I hope so. You know, it's a term that that my good friend Daryl Miller, uh, who's with the Disciple Nations Alliance, has coined at least for me. And so I can't take credit for it, but but Gnosticism is an is an idea that goes back to the time of the New Testament, at least. And Gnosticism says that the spiritual realm is good, and the material realm is essentially evil. And so the idea is we've got to escape from this world. We've got to uh, remove ourselves from the material realm. And, and I, I believe, and many others who are a lot smarter than I believe, that what the church has done in the West is essentially. Uh, adopted sort of a an evangelical version of that. And what that looks like is something like this, that Christ is Lord of our spiritual lives, but he's divorced from everyday life. And so we worship him on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday, he's not particularly relevant. And so we kind of live in this bifurcated existence. We, we live in a, in a fragmented way of being in the world in which we pray to God on Sunday morning. But Monday through Saturday, we essentially live the way the culture around us lives because Christ isn't very relevant to it. And so at a very practical level, here's what it looks like. Uh, um, so in God's grace, I was able to get a PhD. And, and if you asked me, you know, in the process, how are you doing this? I would have said something like this. You know, um, I'm trying to develop my gifts and my abilities to glorify God. And so I'm working really hard uh, to develop my gifts and abilities to pursue his calling on my life. And there's truth in that. But, but you know, Satan always gets in there and he pulls stuff on us. And, and part of my story is that um, I was terrified of getting to a test and not knowing the answers. And so what I would do is work like a dog to control the situation. I would memorize everything uh, and, and work like crazy, trying to master the situation, trying to be in control of my life. And, and, and the reason I needed to do that was because God wasn't really in control of my life. Again, he's somebody I worship uh, in the abstract on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, he's kind of far away. He's not that relevant to the mater my material existence. He's not that relevant to my everyday life. And so because he's not really in control Monday through Saturday, I have to be. And in my way of trying to control the world is through uh, learning the material, mastering the ideas, mastering the knowledge. Uh, you could say mastering the technology. And this is actually the story of Western civilization because God isn't relevant Monday through Saturday. We have to use science and technology and knowledge to master our everyday existence. And it's not a healthy way of being in the world. It leads to all kinds of uh, emotional problems, relational problems, and, and, and brokenness. And that would be true in my own life. There are um, the very things that have brought me success have also had uh, negative impacts on my, uh, my physical and emotional and relational well-being. We need a different way of being in the world. And I thought this was interesting. I, and one of the examples that you give in the book is... Um, it was a, a a Christian. I can't find exactly uh, the exact thing about it, but I remember the story because it, it hit me so hard. Is a bunch of Christian students in a college class, and they were asked, you know, how do you get a job? And yeah. you know, they gave the, it, it, share that story. I think it's incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I teach at uh, Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and um, deeply grateful for, for that school and for the, the chance to be there. And that school has profoundly shaped me, profoundly shaped the messages of becoming whole. Uh, we get some of the best students uh, uh, from Christian families in the country. These are godly young people. Uh, they speak into my life in profound ways, but there's an exercise I do with them every year. And I say to them, uh, what, do you, what should you do to get a job? And so I, I, I write their answers on the board and their answers are always something like this. You should study hard. Uh, you should major in uh, computer science, not philosophy. You should, you should um, uh, learn how to write a resume. You should learn how to uh, use your dad's connections. You should learn how to um, get through a job interview. It's all about technique. It's all about the things that they can do to control their futures. Uh, I've done this with hundreds and hundreds of students. And uh, they never say you should fall on your knees and pray to the creator and sustainer and redeemer of the entire cosmos, including uh, the creator and sustainer and redeemer of work, and, and ask him to help you find a job that's suited with your calling in his kingdom. It, it, it's all about technique. It's not about pressing into a relational God who's present, who's connected, who's here, who's active in this world, who cares about every hair on our head. Our God is very divorced from our everyday lives in Western civilization. It's killing us. And I think this goes back to you talking about square peg and a round hole. We are trying to fit God into this box that he can't be fit in. And I, I think that's um, what even is more interesting about one of the examples you give about poverty alleviation, the truth-centered transformation. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this country that I, I was blown away by this story, and I'd love for you to share that one too. Yeah, there's a, a great organization called Reconciled World that is working in many, many countries around the world. And in one of the countries they're working in is a closed access country where the government is heavily, uh, very oppressive. And um, they uh, went out and started working with pastors and churches and rural villages. And there was no outside resources, no outside technology, nothing. And they simply studied God's word. And in that word, they discovered who they were. They discovered that they were created to be image bearers, created to be people who uh, uh, represent God Almighty, and that they were people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and that God was present amongst them and would empower them to live into God's story if they trusted in in him. And and so without any outside resources, without any outside knowledge, they made tremendous progress in uh, bringing wholeness and flourishing to their communities. Uh, They planted crops differently, and they uh, uh, built bridges, and they uh, um, dug wells, and they really just pressed into this idea, again, that they are made to be image bearers, that the Holy Spirit dwells in them, that God would help them, would walk with them. And they trusted in that story. And uh, without any outside help, uh, about 500 villages have actually been lifted out of poverty through this approach of pressing into the truth of God's story and calling on him in ways that were sometimes miraculous. Uh, the story after story of how God showed up in miraculous ways, the point that the government uh, uh, sent in researchers and said, what is going on in these villages? We don't understand it. And the researchers came back and said, it's the book that they're reading. Uh, it's the Bible. Well, the government didn't like that story. 
So they sent in a, a, a bunch of other researchers and said, come back and, and tell us the truth of what's going on. The, these are PhD researchers went in and they said, it's their God. It's the God of these people who is showing up and making uh, the, the crops grow, who's bringing flourishing to their individual lives and to their villages. It's their book they're reading and the God they're worshiping. It's a God who's present, who's connected, who's active, who's actually doing something in this world. That's the God of those villages. And I think that's great. Yeah, the incredible. And there's an incredible story there too. You'll have to read in the book about becoming whole of, of what they did, what one village did. That's incredible at the very end of a harvest. Uh, but th- this ties into where you talk about there are miracles, and then there are miracles. And I think <laughs> I think you know, especially in in our in our American uh, mindset, sometimes I think. I mean, I'll believe. I'll say this. I don't often think I see miracles in my life, in everyday life. But so, talk about what the differences between miracles and then miracles. That's a great question. You know, uh, a number of us really believe that miracles don't happen anymore, and that perhaps uh, when the uh, canon was closed, the New Testament ended, that God stopped doing miracles in the world. That's just not true. Uh, God does miracles every day. Uh, there's stories of his uh, uh, intervening in in supernatural ways all over the world. Uh, if you uh, go to Africa, you will hear story after story after story of the ways that God is working uh, amongst unreached people groups, the way that God is intervening in special ways. And so on the one hand, we want our, 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 our readers to be awakened to the possibility that God could act in miraculous ways in their lives. In fact, uh, if, if one is a believer, God has already uh, uh, engaged in the miraculous activity in that person's life. But on the other hand, we kind of want people to recognize that they are living into miracles every day in, in the ordinary. And this goes back again to the notion that our God is a relational God Colossians chapter 1 teaches that Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer and reconciler of all things. And what that means is that the sun goes up and goes down every day because he makes it happen. Uh, the, he holds the atoms in place. We, again, this goes back to our evangelical Gnostic tendencies. We tend to believe that the material world functions on its own. That's not true. Uh, God Almighty makes the flowers grow. Uh, every day. God Almighty gives us breath, every breath we take. And so there's a sense in which um, what we might call the laws of nature are actually miracles unfolding before our eyes every single day. Every last law of nature reflects the sustaining and active presence of God Almighty in this world. And so once we start to recognize that, we can start to talk about every moment of every day being our encounter with the triune God. And it makes our lives come alive. It makes us uh, see God's handiwork and God's presence in ways that we might not think of otherwise. And so I'm trying to learn how to do this in my own life and trying to uh, just have a deep sense of God's presence in the ordinary, because that's where he is. He's present, he's connected, he's here, and we can experience him uh, every moment of every day in ways that are miraculous, even though we don't typically recognize them as being such. Talking with Brian Fickert, uh, incredible book, Becoming Whole. And again, more of this is about 
I think, us becoming whole than trying to help others become whole in poverty alleviation. But we're going to get to that. But I feel like you just have to break everything down to the most basic thing and, and, and retrain how we th- look at a lot of things in our faith before we can help others. It's kind of like, you know, you're in the airplane, you have to adjust your own air mask before you help others. So that's it. Right. That's it. And Brian, so I, I love this fundamental question that I don't think a lot of us ever think about. You've got, why did Jesus come to earth? And, and, and the, you know. fo- the foundation that that is for everything past that. Well, that's a great question, Andy. You know, uh, in God's grace, I've had the chance to ask thousands of Bible-believing Christians uh, in the United States and around the world, why did Jesus come to earth? It's like the most basic question, the most fundamental question to our faith. And, and, and what, what most people say, most believers say is something like this. Uh, Jesus came to die on the cross to save me from my sins so that my soul can one day go to heaven when I die. And that's a true answer. It's a good answer. The Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that we have a legal problem before a holy God. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin are death. We have a legal problem before a holy God. And Christ's death and resurrection pay the penalty for our sin. And so we are freed up from our legal obligation. We're declared righteous. There is a legal transaction on the cross, and I don't deny that in any way, shape, or form, and it's central to the gospel. But it's not the whole gospel. It's so interesting, at the start of Jesus' earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4, he says in verse 43, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. And if you start to look for it, you'll see that the kingdom of God is the primary theme in all of Jesus' preaching and teaching. And so the legal transaction on the cross is a subset of a larger story that the entire cosmos was created good, that because of the fall, every square inch of the created order has been messed up, and that what Christ's death and resurrection do are liberate the entire cosmos, including the entire personhoods of believers, to live into a new creation. And so it's more than just getting our legal problem solved. It's actually that we become new creatures in Christ. We become a different kind of thing. We were one kind of thing, and now we become another kind of thing. It's a, to use a big term, it's an anthropological change. We were one kind of being, now we're another kind of being, and we're living into a new creation. And that has huge implications for every aspect of our lives. It affects what we do as soon as the alarm clock gets off on uh, as soon as the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning, you know, a, a lot of us, we live lives that basically say this. Christ dies on the cross to save me from my sins. I trust in him. And so I'm sure that my uh, soul will go to heaven one day when I die. And we kind of think that's the end of the Christian story. And we're kind of stuck. And so we, we've kind of got that story. Our legal problem has been solved. Now the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning. Well, what do we do? Well, well, we the church hasn't given a good story for that. And so what happens is we just default to the story of the culture around us. We default to the story of the American dream. And so what we do is we trust in Christ for the uh, uh, solve our legal problems. Monday through Saturday, we essentially live like the rest of the society around us. And we're not flourishing. Uh, the society as a whole is encountering profound 
uh, amounts of mental illness, and so are the children of those of us who are believers, because we're living like the world. But the story of Jesus Christ is a different story. It's a story that says, I'm King of kings and Lord of lords, and I'm using all the power I have in heaven and earth to transform this world into new creation. It's not that your soul is going to float around like Casper the Friendly Ghost someday. I've launched a new kingdom, a new creation in which you will live as a fully embodied creature. You will live as a whole person. And in fact, I've already launched that and you're called to live into that great story right now. And it gives us a reason to get out of bed on Monday morning. It gives us a story to live into and to act into. We get to improvise the story of God's kingdom in the here and now in a fully embodied way, in a fully embodied creation that will continue for all eternity, that Christ will be transforming. And indeed, he's already begun the process of transformation. It's a better story. It's a better way of being that gives us hope and meaning and purpose for not just our souls, but for our bodies and for every square inch of the cosmos. All right, Brian Fickert, Becoming Whole. And there is so much more in this book, but really I just want, I, I want people to just go through it and highlight it like I did and figure out, I mean, it will really change the way you look at what organizations you want to give to, uh, how you want to see them um, in, 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 in that whole thing. And I just love the last line of your book. The goal isn't to live the American dream now and get our souls to heaven later. The goal is to become whole. So one more little quick thing, because we didn't have a chance to really uh, dwell on that too much of of how we help out with poverty alleviation with other organizations. How do we, if we've become whole, what's the best way for us to help others become whole? I think a a way of thinking about it is more of a journey that... um, we, ha- we, we aren't going to be whole in this life, but that we are on a journey towards wholeness if we are in Christ. And that working with the poor isn't about making them like us. It's about walking with them as Jesus Christ shows up and makes both of us a little bit more whole as we walk with him. And so poverty alleviation isn't so much about going in and putting food in the hands of a, of a homeless person. It's more about grabbing the hand of that homeless person and saying, I'm broken and you're broken, but I found the bread of life and let's go feast on him together. And so it's more of a posture of a process of moving towards Christ uh, through uh, the power of his spirit and walking with low and come people across time as he works in all of us together. It's kind of a new buzzword. I'm sure you've heard it before and you probably have people in your life that are like this toxic people, people that are harmful to your life. They drain your energy. They drain you spiritually, physically, emotionally. Well, coming up next week, Author Gary Thomas is going to talk about his book, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People, here on the 30-Second Book Club.